Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Good morning. Good morning. It's so good to be with you, not leading worship, but being able to worship alongside of you. It's always it's such a blessing to step down. I love what I get to do, but I um, love hearing your guys' voices. King of Kings, yeah. I gave you that one. Wow, that was okay. You guys don't like that. The first service was pumped. They were like, yes, King of Kings. We love this song. Um, so, but I love being able to worship alongside you. Love worship, but uh, today I get to open up the word. You get to open up the word with you guys. We've been in this series in Mark for 15, 16 weeks, and I get to conclude it. And it is way harder to conclude a series than it is to start a series. I started that Fisherman of, Fisherman of Men, Fisherman, Fisherman, what is it called? Life on Mission, something like that. I preach on being Fishers of Men, and it's way easier because you just toss it out and you preach, and then it's Austin and the teaching team's job to recover and figure out where they're going to go next. So uh, have grace for me as I finish out Mark. We're going to be looking at the resurrection. It's going to be really, really good. Uh, last week, Austin spoke on redemption. He used the story of Peter. We see Peter. We all love Peter, but three times Peter denies Jesus, and then Jesus later gets to offer, offer up reconciliation and redemption and go, Jesus, do you love me? Three times he asks. And, and the point that kind of, one of the points that Austin really landed on was most likely the, your greatest place of, of pain or of weakness is probably your greatest place of ministry. And so that was last week, and now we're going to look at the resurrection. But before we get in, um, I, one of my favorite things in the whole world is when you meet someone who's just clearly been with God. You guys know what I mean? I hope, I hope that you guys have names and faces that come to mind when I say that. Like people who have just, they've clearly talked to God, they've spent time with God, the Holy Spirit is just rich inside of them. Often they're, they're a little seasoned, they've walked with the Lord for tons of years, and, and I just, I love it. And so I had the privilege of meeting one of those people just a few weeks ago. One of those people who just, they just drip with the Holy Spirit. Um, I had gone to a pastor's gathering with Taylor and Austin at the Colorado House of Prayer, and there was about 170 church leaders and pastors all gathered together, and everyone was worshiping, and it was awesome, and it was, it was so inspiring, and the Spirit of God was so clearly there, and the guest speaker for the event was a man named Lou Engel. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him, but um, in short, he's a prophetic voice to the nations. He's a prayer warrior. He's an author. He's a pastor. He's a faster, like one of the guys who really fasts. Like, if you follow him on social media, it is like, hey, guys, starting my 40-day water-only fast, crying for a revival. And it is, it's, it's crazy, this man. He, he's the co-founder of a ministry called The Call, which is a global ministry where 20, 30, 40,000 people gather to worship and to pray and to be sent out into missions. Um, for 16 years, he's been leading a, a prayer ministry with the sole purpose of tearing down Roe v. Wade. 16 years, every day, praying and fasting to see that overturned. And so you'd imagine his joy this last June when it was overturned. And so he's just, he's, he's one of those guys that when he talks, it seems as though heaven moves closer to earth. And so he was the guest speaker and there was nothing eloquent about him. It was, it, but it was so impactful. But what rocked me the most about the whole encounter was when I met his wife. I met his wife after the event. I was talking to my mom and we were in the green room and this, this older, super gentle, humble lady, she walks up to us and she just goes, oh, I wanted to meet the woman behind the scenes to my mom and hi, my name is Therese and we just love what you're doing. And the whole time I was thinking about how like, this is, this is some adorable closet praying grandmother who had worked her way into some prayer gathering, but no pastor or leader is gonna kick her out. And so she's there and then she makes the statement that Lou and I 
are just so, are so excited and so proud of what you guys are doing to my parents. And, and in that moment, it clicked for me that this was the woman behind the scenes of the great Lou Engel. This was the woman who was raising up kids and fasting alongside her husband as he just led this massive global prayer and fasting movement. And it was amazing. I bet we talked for two minutes and I, I left so transformed by the conversation. Because there, there was such a presence of God on her life. It was, it was so much so that after the conversation, my mom turned to me and she's like, I want to be her friend. I just want, I want to be your friend. And, and even I, after the event, I got in the car with my wife, Madison. Hey, come on, wife. But um, <laughs> praise the Lord for marriage. Um, and I just, I got in and I was just like, I, I want to love Jesus better. Like from one two-minute encounter with this woman, I was like, I want to love Jesus better. And of course, I know that the, the Ingle family, like they're not perfect. They're imperfect. They have their problems. They fight, I'm sure. But what was so abundantly clear to me was that both of them had died to themselves and it was Christ who lived in them. It was just so clear that even just 30-minute sermon, two-minute encounter, and I'm walking away longing to know Jesus. And it just, it forced the question in my mind to go, well, what would it look like if there was a community of people, a church, a family, that when we would interact with people, the only thing that would be left would, in people's hearts is a desire to know Jesus better. Like, what would that look like? What would it look like if there was a community of people who have all said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Caden's dead, Austin's dead. It's Christ who lives in us. So this morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the death and the resurrection of Jesus and how in that there lies an invitation for us to die and walk in a resurrection power as well, with the hopes of leaving people wanting Jesus after they encounter us. So if you guys would, would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Lord, we just welcome your spirit. Lord, we just elevate your scripture, and we just ask that it would change us, inform us, and be with us. Lord, help me. It's in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so if you guys would, open your Bible to Mark. We're going to be in Mark 15 and 16, and we're going to be reading like 50 verses, like the rest of Mark. And so I would encourage you, if you have your Bible, if you have a Bible app, make sure to open it to read along. We will have the words up on the screen. And if you also want to, you can follow along in the YouVersion app where we have sermon slides posted there. So we're gonna read Acts 15, starting in verse 16. And we're just reading Jesus brought in, death, resurrection, and the, the Great Commission. So starting in verse 16, it says this. And the soldiers led him, who is Jesus, away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they, called, they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, and they said, Hail, the king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified." And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes, they mocked him to one another saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down on the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. In verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. There was also women looking on from the distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and the younger of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Verse 42, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that, they sh that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Chapter 16, this work is good. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the, stu the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed, for you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, but he's risen. He's not here. Look, see where the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you up to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they had nothing. They said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So we're going to keep reading. In your Bible, you may see it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Just for your rest, the Gospel Coalition said that 99% of Mark's manuscripts do include it. And they could only find two that did not. So it's been in the canon of scripture for quite some time. So we're going to keep reading. Verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Verse 14. And afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. For whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. 
And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked at them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's, that's the gospel. That's why we do it. That's why we're here on a Sunday. It's why we join small groups. It's why we, it's why we worship. It's why we read the word. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross. That's the foundation of the Christian faith. It is everything for us. And so I just, I won't really, I just don't want us to miss that. I don't want us to read it because it maybe is so familiar to us that we just lose the power of the resurrection. That Jesus, the kindness of his mercy, stepped into our life. He bore our sin. He bore our shame. He carried our cross. He took the nails in his hand and then he went to the grave and three days later, he rose again so that we may have eternal life. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's everything for us and everything for our faith. So, the disciples would have just walked a three-year journey with Jesus. And we've just walked our journey through Mark. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to spend a little bit of time of putting our feet in the shoes of the disciple. We're going to think, what were they thinking during this time? What were they feeling during this time? What was their life like as they waited during Jesus's death and then his resurrection? So there's four things that we need to understand about an apprentice in Jesus's day. There are four goals. And so you can put these up on the screen. An apprentice or in a disciple of Jesus in Jesus's time in Near East culture would have had four goals constantly on their mind as they apprenticed under a teacher. The first goal would be that they were simply to be with their rabbi. They were simply to be with their rabbi. You think of when Jesus called many of the disciples, they were fishermen, and he said, hey, I want you to come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Their response was to leave their former occupation, to leave everything they had to follow their teacher. In Mark 3, verse 14, which Austin mentioned last week, it says, Jesus appointed his 12 disciples so that they would be with him. They would talk with him, hang out with him, travel with him, eat with him. They were doing everything with Jesus. The second goal of an apprentice in Jesus' day was to learn his teachings. Now, the teachers in Jesus' day, they didn't have the fulfillment of the gospel. They didn't have the New Testament. So what they taught from was a thing called the Torah or the law. And they would take what the law had and then they would teach it to the people because the law did not cover every single aspect and challenge of life. It would say, if you touch this animal, you are now unclean, but what about this animal? And the teacher's job was to take the Torah and take the law and they would, they would communicate it to the people so that they could live. And so an apprentice of a teacher, they would learn everything that their teacher taught, the way he interpreted scripture. The third thing was they were simply to become like him. They wanted to become like their rabbi. And this is so countercultural to, to what we live in today where it's all about personal autonomy and authenticity and you just be authentically you and find your truth. Not in Jesus's day. In Jesus's day, it was all about mimicking and becoming like your teacher. You would copy, you would imitate even to the speed in which he walked, you would copy it. The goal was to become exactly like your rabbi. And then the fourth thing was they were to carry on his work. They were to carry on the family business, the family ministry. We see that with even apprentices today with a carpenter or a plumber. The goal is that you be raised up, you learn the craft, and then eventually you either start your own business or carry on the work. It's no different than in Jesus's day. And so those were the four goals of a disciple. And so we need to keep that in mind as we consider the disciples and what they were thinking at the time. So these young men, they would have been with Jesus. They would have seen his every move. They would have seen his every move. They would have seen how Jesus moved towards those who were considered unclean or those who were socially outcasts. 
right? We would have seen how Jesus would have treated the tax collector or the leper or the prostitute or even women and children. He moved towards them. He embraced them. He spoke to them. That was so different in Jesus's day. Now, as the apprentices, the disciples of Jesus, they were expected to do the same because they're mimicking their teacher. So now they have to interact with those who are outcasts and those who are considered unclean. They would have seen how Jesus responded to crowds. The crowds show up and Jesus didn't push them away. Jesus moved towards them. He was moved by compassion. He fed them. He blessed them. He healed them. And so now the responsibility of an apprentice is when you interact with the crowd, you're supposed to do the same. They would have seen Jesus constantly retreat to be with God the Father in prayer. They were supposed to mimic this practice as well. They would have seen how he spoke, how he thought, how he taught. They would have seen everything. Then they would have done everything in their power to do the exact same. They were to adopt his very lingo and his cadence of speech. That's what apprentices did. They would copy until their copying became authentically who they were. But then what about the crucifixion? That really throws a wrench in their apprenticeship. Jesus, this man is taken in. They would have seen how in the garden of Gethsemane, he's, he's brought in by people and he doesn't pull out a sword. He doesn't curse, he doesn't attack, he doesn't run, and yet he goes in silently. They would have seen how he was beaten, he was berated, he was mocked, he was scorned. They would have seen how Jesus stood silent before his accusers as they all chanted, crucify him. They would have seen how Jesus would have carried that cross up the hill. And then finally, they would have seen how as, as he hung there, he didn't curse. He just said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They would have seen it all. They would have seen their teacher going through all of this. An apprentice was supposed to mimic and copy all of what their teacher did. So what did it mean for them? Jesus wasn't calling his apprentices to die, was he? This had to have been some big misunderstanding. This was, Christ was not modeling anything in this moment. This was simply jealous relig religious church leaders who were trying to destroy a thriving ministry. The disciples and Jesus were the victim. They were the victims in the story. Jesus was not teaching anything in this moment. But then phrases like, if anyone wants to come after me, he must first pick up his cross and follow me would have entered their minds. Those were phrases spoken by Jesus. Phrases like, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. Phrases like, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate your own life. That would have echoed in their minds as they considered, what is their next step as his apprentice? Was, was Jesus' ministry all a lie? But that can't be the case, because they, with their own eyes, they would have seen the leper made whole, the blind man given his sight, and the paralyzed man walking on his own two legs. So they knew his ministry was real, but what were they to do? Was Christ, was Christ calling them to die? What are we to do? For we're a part of the same story, grafted in the same family, and given the same call. Are we expected to die as Jesus' disciples and apprentices and following as Christians? Are we called to die? I believe Paul, the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament, um, gives, gives the disciples' conclusion incredibly well in Philippians 3. So if you guys have your Bible, you can turn there with me, but it will be up on the screen. Philippians 3, verse 7, Paul says this. He says, But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then hear this verse 10. It says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That was the disciples' noble conclusion. They too were also to die. That's what they concluded. And I'm not just speaking physically, though it's believed that 10 out of the 11 original disciples were all martyred for their faith. But what they decided in this moment was that they were called to die spiritually. For they understood that there can be no resurrection power if they first didn't die. Hear me in this. For there can be no resurrection power if there is not first a crucifixion. The very word resurrection implies death. So the, the conclusion and the question that we are faced with today is we also have to die. That's what Christ has called us to do. Or as Diedrich Bonhoeffer so poignantly pronounced, he said this. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die to come and die. And I think the continual pressing problem for most of the church today is that we ourselves, we don't wanna die. I don't wanna die, it hurts, it stings, it's messy. Why would I wanna die? Christ died so that I don't have to die. I don't wanna die, it's messy. And the problem with that thinking is that it leaves us to agree with Paul only in part. Verse 10 is, we would love to know God. We'd love to see the power of his resurrection, but I think few of us are really willing to share in his suffering and become like him in his death. But you may be asking, but, but why? Like he died on the cross so that I don't have to. And I think the why behind why we have to die is because it's the only way we can fill, fulfill what Christ has called us to. It's the only way. We see in Mark's gospel, the Great Commission, where he says, go make disciples of all nations. And I think most of us, we love to quote Matthews because it's a little easier to stomach. Go make disciples and I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. And it's like, yes, praise the Lord. Then you read Mark's and he's like, these signs will accompany you. You'll cast out demons. You'll cleanse the leper. You'll, you'll put your hands on this. You'll drink poison and it will not kill you. There's a power in that commissioning. And I truly believe for us to be people who walk in that power and to see those miracles and to truly go and, and bring, make disciples of all nations, we have to die. It's the only way that we can make disciples. It's being the Therese Engel that I mentioned early in the story where, where one encounter with someone and they're just left longing to experience God. There's a desire placed in the heart to experience Jesus because the church is in desperate need the world is in desperate need of resurrection power. I can even think there are probably people in this room where, where men and women's marriages are just at their breaking point. They're at their breaking point. Or parents who are wrestling and questioning, how on earth do we raise this kid who is being so rebellious? Work situations that are unhealthy and exhausting. Or maybe you just come to church and you're like, I can never measure up. My parents have some friends um, there's two couples and they both have daughters about the same age and their daughters have just been destroyed, crippled with health stuff. They've seen doctor, they've seen physicians, they've seen chiropractors, they have done everything. They've gone on diets. They have done everything in their power as parents to bring healing to their kids. And you can hear the desperation in one of the mother's voices. She was having a conversation with my mom and she just said this to her. She just said, where is the person in the church who has the healing anointing? 
Where is the person in the church who has the healing anointing? Where is the person who's walking in the resurrection power? And of course, I understand that if we had one person who was walking in a healing anointing, it would not solve every problem. I also understand that not everything is going to be fixed on this side of life. But you can hear her desperation. You can hear her desperation in her question. And and we know this, we see this, but all of it is broken. The whole world is fractured. It's all splintered. We know that doctors, they can't cure every disease. We know therapists, they can't answer every question. We know teachers can't explain every concept and scientists can't solve every phenomenon. And we for sure know the government can't fix every problem. (laughs) But I believe it's the glorious honor and the duty of the church to partner with the Holy Spirit and to solve these problems. It's walking in the resurrection power. The church must walk in the power of the resurrection. It's our greatest, it's our destiny and it is our greatest call. And I am persuaded that the success we have in making disciples and the power in which we walk in is directly correlated to our own spiritual deaths. Our obedience and our surrender is our next step. It's always our next step. It was Christ's first step, it was Christ's last step. It will be our first step and it'll be our last step. But we can take heart. I know dying hurts and it stinks and it's painful. We can take heart because Jesus experienced this. Our King, our Savior experienced this. If you're unfamiliar with the story, Jesus on the night of his betrayal is in this garden called Gethsemane and he's praying and he's sweating blood and he's asking his disciples to stay up with him. And and he has this statement, he says, God, if you would allow it, would you take this cup of suffering from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Gethsemane literally means oil press. It's the crushing place. It's where Jesus' own wills and his own ambitions and his own dreams and his own preferences were crushed, where he chose to give up his life to follow the will of the Father. We too have to go into our own garden of Gethsemane and have our own wills, our own dreams, our own personal ambitions crushed so that we can adopt his. Jesus had to carry a cross up Golgotha's hill. I, I think that we as Christians are called to carry our own cross as well. And maybe our cross isn't one of wood and nails, but it's the loss of a loved one. It's the dream shattered. It's, it's the sickness, whatever it may be. All of us are called to carry our own cross. So my question to us as a family of believers and myself included is, have we done this? Have we done this? Have we gone into our own garden of Gethsemane to have our wills, our dreams, our ambitions crushed so that we might get his? Have we walked the long, painful journey along Golgotha's hill, carrying a cross on our back? Have we experienced our own spiritual death so that we might walk in a resurrection power? Have we been emptied so that we might be filled? And sadly, too often we allow our flesh to live on within us. Too often we allow it to live. A.W. Tozer, I love this. He says so honestly and insightfully, he says it this way. He says, there is a tough, fibrous root of our fallen nature that is lodged deep within our hearts that must be extracted. There's a tough fibrous root of our fallen nature. It's lodged deep within our hearts that must be extracted. And the problem is that many of us, we long to know God, the power of his resurrection, but are unwilling to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. And if I can be honest with you guys, I think many of us know the areas in our life that need to die. I think for many, Um, It's not some massive, painful expedition up Golgotha's hill, but instead it's the small enjoyments of the flesh that we tolerate. Maybe it's the language we use, the curse word that comes out of your mouth when you stub your toe. 
Or maybe it's bigger, it's the gossip that we participate in that dishonors and defames God and tears apart relationships in your life. Maybe it's our time management. Maybe it's finally saying no to the world of entertainment so that we can finally hear God's voice. Leonard Ravenhill, he says this, he says, entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. It's a little intense, but there might be some truth to it. Maybe it is abandoning, the, abandoning those lifelong self-driven ambitions so that you may finally be given dreams from God, dreams that benefit others and dreams that bring glory to his name. Maybe it's sacrificing time and sleep to wake up earlier, to go to bed late so that you would pray for the city, for the state, for the broken nation in which we live. Whatever the case, I'm thoroughly convinced that it is in the repudiation of all things that are not of God that truly allows us to walk in a resurrection power. It's the self-denial of the flesh and the desires that I want. Whatever, the, whatever it is that Christ is calling each of you to, because we all have our different crosses and our different burdens, we cannot tolerate living dualistic lives where we desire both God and things, both God and money, both God and dreams, both God and fill in the blank. We must surrender to the Holy Spirit and partner with him to rip out that old fibrous root of our fallen nature so that we can be filled with the Lord. I wanna speak really, really briefly to the, the me personalities in the room. So I'm like pastor's kid, teacher's kid, homeschooled, sheltered, just beyond belief. Thanks, I love my parents and I'm thankful for what they did, but my gosh. Um, when I hear a sermon like this, my gut reaction is I, I grab an ax and I just start chopping away at my life. I'm like peacock, gone. Netflix, gone, Instagram, gone, savings account, gone, my shoes, my closet, my car, I'll sell my car, I'll ride, I'll ride my bike to work, I'm so holy. That's my gut reaction. And actually, I had an experience like this, so this is really fun. I, um, I was reading a book, and it's all about minimalism and simplicity and living with less, and it was really, really inspirational, really, really good book. And <laughs> Maddie's smiling, but um, I, I read this book, and I was so convicted and so inspired that I, I literally got rid of everything. Like I had, I think like 45 pairs of shoes. I was, I had some cool shoes, some Jordans, Air Maxes, whatever. And I got rid of everything. I got rid of all the way down to the point where I didn't have basketball shoes or cleats or boots or anything. And I got rid of all of it. And I moved down to like three t-shirts and I'm like, I don't need anything. I can live simple. And that's what Christ has called me to. And then it really messed me up when winter came and I need a hoodie or a sweat, like anything, or I need a pair of boots or I'm playing basketball and I don't like, so I ended up having to buy all these things back and pay more money, and I loved what I had. And, and, and so I understand that the, the gut reaction a lot of us for maybe who, if you grew up in church is we start chopping away to make ourselves look more holy to those around us and to God. And we start hacking away at our life. And so what I wanna encourage you, if that's you in the room, and maybe you have the same disposition as me, our heart and our ambitions can only be to bring pleasure to the heart of God. That has to be it. I can't act, I can't just sacrifice things in hopes it brings honor to God. What I have to do is I have to be obedient. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Samuel says this. He says that God desires obedience over sacrifice. God desires obedience over sacrifice. So our gut reaction to something like this about going to die is I can't just start chopping away at my life. I have to open my hands, lay my life bare and go, God, is there anything in me that I need to repent of? Is there anything me in me that I need to turn? Is there, a, is there a little fibrous root of my fallen nature somewhere that I'm unaware of that I need to extract? We have to do that. That has to be our response. See even the words of David in Psalms 51. 
where he says this. This is after his big mistake with Bathsheba. He says, the sacrifices of God, wait, do I have the right verse? Yes, I do. Oh, you will, not, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. So our response to something like this, to the word of the Lord, is we cannot just act out of a, a, a sacrifice or a sacrificial spirit. We have to respond with obedience. And so finally, I wanna, I wanna stress this point because I believe it to be the most important. But we, we see throughout Mark that he, he always lined up parts of scripture very intentionally. He'd put ideas to stress emphasis. Or, and we saw that over and over throughout this series. And so I want us to look at Mark 15, verse 37 and 38. And it says this, it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And what immediately follows? And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The truth for all of us is that the great gift of our spiritual deaths is that we get him. We get his presence. We saw that Christ's obedience on the cross, it led to the presence of God being released everywhere. His obedience led to the presence of God being accessible to everyone. And I really do believe this with all my heart. I am convinced of it, that there are measures to God's presence that are to be experienced that only come after our spiritual deaths. When we die, Bill Johnson actually says this, speaking from Psalms 23, he says that there are, there are measures to God's presence that can only be felt in the valley of the shadow. It's, it's why so many of us, when we go through hardship, we almost long to return to it, but because we felt his nearness. And I really do believe the same is true for us if we die. If we die spiritually, there, there is access to his presence made available. There are measures to his presence that we will probably never experience unless we die. And not only do we benefit from it, others around us do. We see Jesus's one act of sacrifice made his presence accessible to all. Because as I mentioned earlier, the church and the world are in desperate need of the resurrection power. I know names come to mind when I say that. There are people in your life who are in desperate need of a touch of the Holy Spirit. And the truth is there are people probably in this church who are currently right now in their own garden of Gethsemane. And their dreams and their ambitions, their desires, their own wills are just being crushed. And what they need more than anything else as like Jesus asked of his disciples, is they need some, some saints to come around them and stay up and pray with them. Or there are people in this church who are carrying their cross up Golgotha's hill right now. And what they need more than anything is a Christian in the community who has walked that Golgotha's hill and has walked that painful road like the Simon of Cyrene and Mark who will come alongside you and carry the burden up the hill. And then I know there are some of you who are literally, you're on the cross right now your own life, and you are, you are dying. You're dying at this point. And what you need is you need someone who will offer a word of life to you in that moment, similar to the person putting the sponge with the sour wine and lifting it up to Jesus to numb the pain. That's what we need. We need people who walk in the resurrection life. But I, I really do believe this, that for a community to do that, we first have to walk the painful roads of both self-repudiation and self-denial to walk in that. We have to walk those roads before because we, we have to believe this. We have to keep this at the forefront of our mind. There is resurrection life. There is an overcoming, victorious, conquering side of the gospel still accessible. If we lose sight of that, we lose sight of everything. 
There is a resurrection life to be found. I love this. When you read Paul, the man who wrote Philippians 3, and he says that I may know him, that I may become like him, and that I may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. When he wrote that, he was also the man we see in Acts 19, 11 through 12. You can put this on the screen. This is Paul, and he says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even his handkerchiefs or aprons that he had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. That's resurrection power. That's a man who, for no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul had died to himself and there was a resurrection power that followed. We see the same with Peter. Peter who denied Jesus three times. It says in the scriptures that they would line the streets along the edges and if Peter, as Peter would walk by, if his shadow would touch them, they would be healed. The scriptures say that the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in us. And so there is resurrection power available. We just have to very much lean into it. So we're gonna, we're gonna go into a time of communion and a time of self-reflection. And I would just encourage you all with, with a talk or a sermon like this that you would, you would just open your hands and go, God, is there something in me that needs to be removed? Or in the words of the psalmist, would you point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. David in Psalms 51, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. All of our crosses are gonna look different. The gardens that we have to enter are going to look different. But what we must do is we have to lift our hands and go, God, if there is a tough fibrous root of my fallen nature lodged deep within my heart, please point it out. Because our heart's response can't just be to sacrifice and to chop away, but it has to be obedient because our heart's desire is to bring pleasure to him. Lord, we thank you that you have just shown us a new way to live. We know that this kingdom um, that we're after is an upside down kingdom and to the rest of the world, it looks ridiculous. Lord, we just know and we believe that there is resurrection life to be found when we come to the end of ourselves. So Lord, we just ask that there would be a spirit of repentance. There would be a spirit of turning that um, lives in us as we leave this place, that it would, um, whatever thing you may have pointed out within us, if there was, Lord, we just pray right now um, that we would keep the same energy and the vigilance leaving this place to remove that old fibrous root. So God, we just pray for your presence to be with us as we go. Would your face shine upon us? It's in your mighty name. Amen. Thank you.